Our sermon today will be taken from 1 John chapter 1, verses 1 to 4. This is the word of God. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we look upon and have touched with our hands, concerning the word of life, the life was made manifest, and we have seen it, and testify it, and proclaim to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. That which we have seen and heard, we have we proclaim also to you, so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. And we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. This is the Lord. Sam, a bit of a printing mishap there. The version on the, on the PowerPoint and the version on your printout sheets is a little different. Go with the one on the PowerPoint. Uh, it's the ESV, okay? That, that's, that's my fault on there. But um, again, Merry Christmas. It's a joy to have you join us at our first worship, uh, Christmas worship service. And it's a joy for us to spend time with you as we celebrate the birth of our Savior. Any time really is a proper time. Any time is an appropriate time to celebrate the birth of Christ. But what an opportune time it is to dig deeper into it during, of course, Christmas. Amidst the presence and the family time and the busyness and the travels, Let's not forget the main thing, what it is that should be central in all of our celebrations, which is Christ himself. Something I pray that our passage today will point our minds and our hearts to as we study God's word deeper. So let's get straight into it. There's three things I want to point out from our passage, and all three points kind of make up one sentence. So I'm going to read it out, then I'll read it again as one sentence so it makes sense, okay? Here are the three things I want to point out from our passage today. First, the one who is creation's beginning. Second, and the one who is creation's end goal. Third, has come to pursue us. The one who is creation's beginning and the one who is creation's end goal has come to pursue us. Let's pray before we get into God's word. Father, be gracious and merciful to us as we attempt to study more that which you have revealed to us from your inspired holy word. Let us be reminded of our main cause of celebration, which is you and your love and pursuit of us. Father, help our minds and help our hearts and let it minister to us as we are renewed in the gospel. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, first point. The one who is creation's beginning. This passage seemed fitting for us to study today because, of course, it's again Christmas, where we celebrate the birth of our Lord and Savior. Believe it or not, in the mid-1900s, there are many challenges that came up to the concept of the virgin birth. Now, it's not a surprise. It's not a, a new thing. There's always been challenges that come up against the virgin birth or other miracle, miracles in the Bible, but usually they come from outside of the church. In the mid-1900s, actually came from inside the church. Many in the church started to deny the virgin birth and miracles as such. To them, it seemed a little bit too magical, a little bit too mystical, a little bit too fairy taleish. This is the rise of liberal thought, claiming that the virgin birth of God becoming man, all this kind of stuff, is unfit for the modern era that we're in, and they have a problem with it. How can such an event be possible? How could a virgin conceive a child apart from the natural norms of law? In this first point, I hope to address this issue by focusing on just the first six words of our passage today. That which was from the beginning. That's all we're going to talk about. That which was from the beginning. 
And I hope to reveal that the miracle of the virgin birth is actually not what liberals and the modern era have a problem with. It's not. What they actually have a problem with are the first six words of our text today, that which was from the beginning. If they believe the statement, that which was from the beginning, then the virgin birth and other miracles would logically be no problem at all for them. All right, let's get into it. First, what does John mean when he says that which was from the beginning? The beginning of what? The beginning of mankind? The beginning of the earth? The beginning of the universe? How far back does beginning go to? Now, when you study the Bible, you can't make up our own, our own definitions of it. We have to let the Bible define itself. So let's, let's look at other passages that help us defi- define what John is saying, that which was from the beginning. Let's look at John's other book. Okay, our author John, he, he wrote the Gospel of John, um, which is the, the, the first four books of the New, it's the fourth book of the New Testament. He records here the life and ministry of Jesus on earth. And he said a similar, a similar thing in the first verse, John chapter 1, verse 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. This is what John's talking about. That which was from the beginning is referring to a being, God, who from the beginning simply was. John's word, both in 1 John and the book of John, clearly echoes the very first words of the Bible. Do you remember it? In Genesis, Genesis chapter 1, verse 1? In the beginning, what? God. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. So how, how far back does beginning go to? Before the creations of the heavens, which is the stars and the universe, the heavens, things up high, and before the earth. Beginning must be understood as the beginning of time itself, not just the beginning of man or world, but the beginning of all things. John, in our first six words of our passage today, speaks of a being that which was from the beginning, a being that had no beginning, because he is the beginning. He is the creator of all things. See, think about it. Those who have a problem with miracles like the virgin birth actually won't have a problem with it if they believe in this foundational biblical claim that there existed a being, that which was from the beginning, who created all things. Think about it again, because if such a being who has the ability and wisdom and power to create all of life out of nothing, why then would it be so difficult for this being to create life out of a virgin's womb? You see, reject the miracle of the virgin's birth if you'd like, but just know you have to be consistent logically. If, if you reject the miracle of the virgin's birth, if you say it's not possible, you also have to reject the existence of such a being, right? You can't have it both ways. Because if such a being does exist, who brought about life out of nothing? For this being to brought about life out of a virgin's womb would be a much simpler task, you see? But if you do receive John's claim, which is foundational in the whole Bible, that there exists a being who created all things, including natural law itself. You must, you must then logically conclude that this being has the power, if he so chooses, to work against, above, or without the natural laws that he has put in place. You see, the problem they have is not with the virgin birth, it's not with miracles, it's with the existence of such a being. To defend the virgin birth, to defend Christmas, so to speak, you must defend the existence of this being. The Bible calls this being with many names, Yahweh, Adonai, Elohim, God. 
let's get deeper into it because we're just talking about six words. So I have to, I guess, make up stuff. I'm joking. I'm not making up stuff. But let's, let's get deeper into it. This is, in fact, the most reasonable and logical thing to conclude that such a being exists. Think about it. This is going to get a bit trippy, but just walk with me. Think about it. For anything to exist in the universe, anything at all, there must have been something that was eternal. There must have been something that transcends time itself. Because if not, how can there be anything at all? Stick with me. If an eternal being doesn't exist, if everything had a beginning, okay? If everything had a beginning, then there must have been a point in time when nothing existed at all, right? If everything had a beginning, there must have been a point in time when nothing existed at all, and somehow something came out of that nothing. But think about it. If there, were, if there was ever a time of complete nothingness, if there was ever a time, use your head, of, of where nothing exi existed, complete emptiness, no substance, no, no God, no matter, just, just empty, just nothing, what would we have today? Nothing. <laughs> something can't come out of nothing. I know it's a bit trippy, but let your imaginations be guided by Scripture. Genesis 1.1, in the beginning, God. 1 John chapter 1, verse 1, our passage today, that which was from the beginning. There had to be this being, because something can't come out of nothing. Okay, There must have been something that has always existed, a being that had no beginning, whose existence is not dependent upon or caused by anything else, but rather who is the cause of all creation. Here's another reasonable argument for this being that our author, our author touches on it later in this book, so I think it's appropriate to put it in and it's a good transition to our second point. Think, think about it. If there's no creator, is, if, if everything was done just by chance, if the narrative and the story of this whole world was dictated by the survival of the fittest, by chance, survival of the fittest, then where did man, you and I, get the idea of love, goodness, genuineness, honesty, empathy, right and wrong. If there is no creator, if it's all by chance, if it's all just the survival of the fittest, right, the stronger eats the weaker, macroevolution, then there's no ultimate measure of right and wrong. If you're stronger, you have the right to devour the weaker, right? You can't then ultimately point at Hitler and say that he's wrong. He was stronger. Right? He had the right to devour those who are weaker. Survival of the fittest dictated. But why is it that man has a sense of right and wrong, of justice and injustice? If we say there's no creator, everything is by chance, and the stronger just eats the weaker, and that's evolution, there's no planner, no designer, no one behind this. It's just a series of luck. Then at the very most, if that's what we claim, at the very most, at the very most, we can say that something feels right and feels wrong, but that's the most we can go. We cannot say something is truly objectively right and truly objectively wrong, you see? All we can say is that it feels right and it feels wrong. Not that it is right and it is wrong. But we know some things just, it's not, it's not they feel more than just wrong. They are wrong. It's not just it feels right, it, it is right. You can't commit a crime and get out of it by saying, well, it didn't feel wrong to me at the time. You can't, because no matter how you feel about it, it is wrong. You see, there, there's an objective standard of right and wrong. Where did this come from? 
Why do we value goodness and kindness and honesty and sacrifice and prioritizing others? Why are some things objectively right and some things objectively wrong? Like the killing of a whole nation. It's objectively wrong. Where did that come from? Let me, let me go a bit further, just so we're convinced. Some have said that humans came up with it. We came up with these concepts of love and kindness and honesty and sacrifice ourselves. Why? Because it was a better survival tool. It was a way for us to survive in this survival of the fittest, right? We, we, sometime, we at some point got together and we came up with the idea and the concept of love, of sacrifice, of patience and honesty and prioritizing others, et cetera, et cetera. Because if we don't, then we won't survive as a species. The concept of loving others at our personal expense, of being patient, of humility, et cetera, didn't come from God. We came up with it to survive longer. Think about it again one more time. Do these things sound like things that would make us survive longer? When you're loving other people at our own expense? When you're being patient with when other people are disadvantaging us? When we're being honest with others, even when it's costly to us? When we're prioritizing others and sacrificing our rights for the benefit of the other person? Do these things sound like they'll make you live longer? It sounds like they'll make you live shorter. Right? Your, your chances of survival are probably less. You're sacrificing, you're giving, you're letting go of precious resources. You're being vulnerable. You're not retaliating when somebody does something wrong to you. You're being honest and not manipulative, even when it costs you capital. It doesn't assure your survival. It actually makes you more prone to harm. It doesn't increase it. It decreases it. So where did it come from? Why do we have this objective sense of right and wrong? more than just subjective feelings, these values of goodness and patience and humility and kindness. John, along with the rest of the Bible, says uh, later in chapter 4 of this first book of 1 John, 1 John chapter 4, verse 8, chapter 4, verse 8, anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. God is love, this being which was from the beginning. He's not just the creator of all things. He's the he's source of love itself. Now, John doesn't say God is loving. He would be right to say so, but he doesn't say God is loving. He says God is love. Gray preached a sermon last week, and he hit on it excellently. It's not as if there's an external standard of love that this being that which was from the beginning, God, meets up to. No. He is love. He's not loving. You see, a, a, loving, a person who is kind, you can say he's a loving person. God is love. He's the source of it. It's where it comes from. You see, he is kindness. He is love. He is humility. He is gentleness. He is, he is, he is beauty. He's the source of all these things. And you cannot explain the existence of an objective right and wrong without some external objective standard of it. The most you can say is that it feels right and it feels wrong. You can't go all the way to saying that it is right and it is wrong unless this objective standard exists. So let's summarize before we get into our second point. Logic and reason both dictate that something can't come out of nothing. And the only explanation that anything exists is that there had to be something that existed without a cause, something eternal without a beginning. This also explains why we, as reasonable beings, have an innate sense of right and wrong. Because this being who is the source of all creation is also the source of love. He is love. The stronger can't just kill the weak 
because they're stronger. Love, kindness, sacrifice, patience, and honesty is not just a feeling, but it's an objective reality. We can't commit a crime and say it didn't feel wrong and get out of it because it is wrong. Okay, this is important as you go to our second point because if this is true, if there existed such a being, okay, let's go back to it. If there existed a being that which was from the beginning, God, an eternal being, then this being who is creation's beginning must also be creation's end goal. Don't worry, I'll get to Christmas later but let's go through the rest of the passage first. So point one, the one who is creation's beginning. Point two, and the one who is creation's end goal. Okay. We've established it's, it's very logical and reasonable that this being exists. And if this being exists, then working against, above, or without his natural laws is not something very hard for him to do. Okay. If this being does exist, the, the, the reason of all of creation and the source of beauty and goodness and rightness then, then this must also be creation's end goal. Our purpose in life, our ultimate overarching purpose in life, must be, therefore, to have some sort of, for lack of a better word, connection, or relationship, or communion, an even better word, or a word that our author used in verse 3, have fellowship with this being. Read verse 3. That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you, so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. This is important, and it's very relevant. John is saying, John is saying, if this is true, if this being does exist, then, then take a second. Just take a second to pause. Really, we need to. If this being exists, pause from the busyness of life. Pause from all the glitter and glamour and lights. Just take a pause, take a second, and think, why are we here? If this being exists, why are we here? What is the purpose, the reason, the aim, the end goal of all of life? It must be, as John says, to be in fellowship with this being. Life then, if truly boiled down to the bare fundamental, the basic, the, the purest purpose of it, life, all of life, is about living in fellowship with this creator with him which was from the beginning let's put it this way this may hit home a little more with many of us because i know a lot of us here value being success we want to be successful people that's all right want to do so but does not the existence of such a being redefine our definition of what success really is as people if he exists then the ultimate success the ultimate purpose of life is not then to reach a particular career goal is not then to reach a particular level of fame or popular acclaim, is not then to reach or maintain a particular standard of living, not even, believe it or not, ye singles out there, to get married. I value those things. I'm married. I think those are great things. They're not inherently evil things, but I'm just saying if the reality is true that that which was from the beginning exists, that's not the overarching and primary ultimate foundational goal of life. What is it? What is success ultimately is? It's measured by how close in fellowship you are to this being. Wouldn't that make sense? That which was from the beginning, that which you have seen and heard, we proclaim to you also, so that you too may have fellowship with us, and indeed our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. 
John's not the only one who said this in the Bible. Jesus himself said it as well. If you go to John chapter 17, which is where Jesus prayed his, what we call high priestly prayer. He prayed for his disciples and he prayed for everyone who would eventually receive him. I want, I'm going to read parts of it, and I want us to notice the language that Jesus uses as he defines what his purpose, what his desire is for his people, okay? It, it, it describes sort of a union, a fellowship between man with each other and between man and their creator. This is Jesus' goal. John chapter 17, verse 21. That they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they may also be in us. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, so that they may be one, even as we are one, I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you loved me. Last one. I made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known, that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. What weird, confusing language. It's sort of an intertwining, an interweaving, a union, so to speak, of man, a fellowship of man and God, as if there's an intricate knot between man and that which was from the beginning. A well-known preacher once described this as a dance, like it or not. A divine dance, and the goal of man is to enter into this divine dance, this union, this fellowship. This is the purpose of life. This is where true joy, John says in verse 4, is found. Look at verse 4. And we are writing these things to you. We're explaining to you this being that existed. We're explaining to you the purpose of life is communion, fellowship with this being. Why? Verse 4, so that our joy may be complete. Ours being the writer and the readers, our joy may be complete. Fellowship with this being is a source to all of joy. Let's, let's talk about this a little bit more before we get into our third point, Christmas. So, joy, the idea of Christian joy, it's been handled very poorly oftentimes. People are, are often turned off by others when they talk about Christian joy because when you talk about Christian joy, you often minimize the realities of the world's sadness. You often ignore and minimize the fact that it's not all joyful. It's, it's up and down, really. A Christian, hear me loud and clear, a Christian has permission to be sad. Absolutely. I know many depressed Christians who wrote really good hymns. When, when I talk about Christian joy, I'm not saying that you always have to be joyful, cheery, singing, skipping everywhere all the time. That's a little creepy. That's not what I'm talking about. Christian joy is something much deeper, something much more intricate. Let me, let me explain it this way. This is a long analogy. I usually don't do long analogies. I usually don't like long analogies, but I don't know why this one ended up being a long analogy. So here we go. Okay, this is my best attempt in explaining Christian joy. It's of a man. A man, one man, has different roles in life. Okay, one, he's a family man. Two, he's an employee. Three, he plays in the soccer team. So he's a teammate. And four, he's a stamp collector. I don't know. Okay? Family man, an employee, plays in a soccer league, and a stamp collector. So one man with many roles, just like all of us here have many roles, right? And he values these roles in a particular order. His first most valuable, most, most cherished role 
is as a family man. This is his overarching, overruling. Let's, let's call this his identity. His identity is as a family man. That's his, this is his main role, his main thing. Okay? So he's a father and he's also a husband. His second role, second most important role, is that as an employee. His third most important role is as a soccer player. And his last, least important role is as a stamp collector. Okay. Identity, family, employee, soccer player, stamp collector. His joy will be affected by how, how all these things are doing, right? But primarily, his identity, how his identity is doing is what will affect his joy most. Because that's most important for him, being a family man. Okay, follow along with me. Let's, let's, so this guy goes through life, and for example, he fails in his role as a stamp collector. Someone else got a really rare stamp that he's really been wanting for a long time. He didn't get it on Amazon. Somebody else got it. He's really sad and upset about it. But at the end of the day, he's still okay. Why? Because his main identity as a family man is not affected. His wife still loves him. His kids still love him. So he still feels the sadness of losing a stamp, but his ultimate joy isn't affected. We're not minimizing this, right? But his ultimate joy is not affected. And then, you know, the next week, he loses a soccer match. His soccer team loses. He, he's sad. He's probably sadder than he would be if he lost a stamp. But at the end of the day, he's still okay. He's still joyful because his ultimate identity, his main thing as a family man, is still intact. Okay? Feel, it's okay to be sad that you lost a soccer match. I'd be sad. But at the end of the day, his, he, he's, he's fine. Now, his second most important role is threatened. As an employee, he did something wrong at work, and he got fired. Okay? He'll feel much sadder than losing a stamp. He'll be, he'll, he'll be less, much less sadder than losing a soccer match. He'll be really sad. But at the end of the day, his wife supported him through it. His kids supported him through it. And they still loved him and they still is with him. At the end of the day, because his identity, his main role is not yet affected, he's still okay. Although he's really, really sad and anxious at this point. You see, humans can feel two emotions at the same time. We're not like old school computers that can only process one software at a time. We can feel a lot of emotion at the time. So we're sad, it's okay, but at the end of the day, our joy is still secure. But, but, if then, unfortunately, he gets a divorce. If he did something wrong, and his wife left him, and his kids don't want to speak to him for years because of this thing that he did wrong. Then, then he'd be a wreck, you see. Then he'd be devastated. Because this isn't just a role to him. This is who he is. This is his identity. This is his very sense of being as a family man. Okay, let's, let's keep that for now. And let, let me bring us back to the text. I want to make the point about Christian joy. We all have different roles in life. Some of us are mothers, we're husbands, or we're a teacher, we're a manager, we're an employee, we're an employer, we're an academic. We could be boyfriend, a girlfriend, a son or a daughter, a pastor. A wife? Maybe some of you collect stamps. I don't know. Good for you. I collect some stamps. It's not that to do. Now think about it. Which, which out of all the roles you have in your life, which is most important to you? Which one has become your identity? It could be that you're somebody's boyfriend or you're somebody's girlfriend or maybe it's your career. Your career is your main identity. Or you're that you're a father or a husband or a wife or a mother. Your joy, then, will be most affected by how this identity is doing. John, let's go back to the text in our passage today, tells us that to have true joy is that you must make sure that your identity, 
your main overarching role is taken care of. If that's taken care of, all the other things, you'll be fine even if it's going up and down. But here's a kicker, here's a kicker. You must realize what your identity is. John is saying you're not primarily an employee. You're not primarily somebody's boyfriend or girlfriend. You're not even primarily somebody's mom. You're not even primarily somebody's child or somebody's husband. If that which was from the beginning exists, and if we were all made by him, all of our primary, ultimate, overarching roles, our, our main identity is as a creature. Here's a kicker. Your main identity, whether you realize it or not, before you're a worker, before you're an employee, before you're a husband, before you're a wife, before you're even parents. I tread that lightly, I love my child. But before you're a parent, you are a creature. If that which was from the beginning exists, we are creatures of this God. We inherently, primarily are creatures and we can only find true joy if our overarching purpose and identity as a creature is taken care of. How, John says in verse 3, by having fellowship with our Creator. Don't forget the pinnacle, most foundational, most primary principle identity you have. You are a creature. Before your job existed, before your spouse existed, before our kids existed, there is that which was from the beginning. And his purpose for you is to be in fellowship with him. This is what the first question of the Westminster Shorter Catechism says. Question number one. What is the chief end of man? What is the end of what is the goal of all of this? Man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. That's what John's saying. Man's chief end, man's overarching ultimate identity role is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever, to have fellowship with him. The reason why our joy is so fluctuating to a point of depression and and I, I, I mean, there's chemical imbalances there that I'm, I'm open really and great to talking about, but I think most of us generally, it's because our identity is in the wrong place. Our identity, we forget that we're creatures, first and foremost, before anything else. And that's our role. And if you take care of this role as a creature, you'll have a steady joy. It doesn't mean that you won't feel sad when all the other roles are going up and down. You'll still feel sad, but at the end of the day, you'll be okay. Because your identity as creature is taken care of. So, last point. Here's the million-dollar question. Leads us to our final point to Christmas. If verse 1 is true, that there was a being, that which was from the beginning, and if we are all creatures of this being, and if verse 3 is true, that as creatures of this being, which is our overarching identity, our role, that before anything else, we are first and foremost his creatures, if, if joy and purpose in life is found in being in fellowship with this being, that which was from the beginning, with this God, and if verse 4 is true, that this is what can give us true joy, even in the midst of the ups and downs of other things in life, if, if this is all true, the question is, how can you have fellowship with him? How can imperfect man like me be in fellowship with such a marvelous, transcendent, glorious, majestic Yahweh Elohim God, the source of love and goodness and joy itself. When I know that in my life remains much hatred, much impurity, much greediness, how can a sinner like me have my identity as a creature be fulfilled and secured forever? Last point. This God, who is creation's beginning, 
and who is the end goal of all creation, has come to pursue us. This, friends, is Christmas. That this creator has come for us that we may have fellowship with him and our identity as creatures will be solidified. Look at the remaining of verses 1 and 2 with me. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life. The life was made manifest, and we have seen it, and testify to it, and proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. Do you see it? Do you see what John's saying? This is the most bold and audacious claim in all of human history, that this God, this being that which was from the beginning, this eternal sovereign creator of all things, who existed eternally, became man. Verse 1, we have heard him with our ears. We have seen him with our eyes. We have looked upon him. We have touched him with our bare hands. He has been made manifest, and we have seen it. Who is John referring to? Who is he talking about? We sung earlier in our Christmas carol, a carol of wonder, a carol of awe. In awe did the writer of our hymn write these words. What child is this who lies in such weak a state? This, this is Christ the King. Hail, hail the Word made flesh. He, he that which was from the beginning, was born an infant, a vulnerable child, born in a place that wasn't even fit for a human king, more or less the God of the universe. We have seen him with our eyes. We have heard him. We have touched him, John adds, with our bare hands, as if he's in disbelief, that his bare hands, his skin, could touch the creator of the universe. Friends, we don't worship Jesus because he was some sort of moral example for us to follow so that we can have fellowship with God. No. We don't worship Jesus because he is ultimately a religious man who can direct us to God. No. We worship Jesus because he is God. That which was from the beginning, we have seen, we have touched, we have heard. Christianity is not based on some vision someone once had. It's not based on a feeling someone once experienced. It's not based on a thought that a philosopher once developed. It's not based on a grand idea that a sociologist once came up with. But in the tangible, audible, visible, historical person of Jesus, Emmanuel, God with us. And it's not a revelation made to one solitary random person in a cave or in a forest somewhere that no one else can testify to. Look at the language John, John says. He challenges the readers who may have doubt because it is a marvelous claim. He says, he doesn't say whom I have heard, whom I have touched, whom I have seen, but he uses 13 times in our passage, he uses the plural we and our instead of I and my, as if he's saying, ask anyone, as if he's saying to the readers at the time, ask anyone, ask anyone in the region of Galilee, ask anyone in the region of Judea, of Jerusalem, and whoever else might come in contact with him during his earthly ministry. Ask the centurion whose son he healed, ask the blind man he made see, ask the lame he made walk, ask the leper he made clean. We have seen him with our eyes. Go ahead. I'm not afraid of you asking anybody because this testimony is true. 
in a court case, if you want to hide a truth, you don't spread out testimonies like that because they can ask anyone. He's saying, go ahead. We have seen him. We have touched him. We have heard him. That he which was from the beginning was born unto us and dwells among us. A few verses. Let me just read. The whole Bible says this. John chapter 1, verse 17 to 18. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side. He, Jesus, has made him known. Colossians 1.15. He is the image of the invisible God. Colossians 2, 8 to 9. For in him, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. Why? Why has he come? Why has he, that which was from the beginning, this eternal God, was born a baby, lies in such weak estate? Our Christmas carol continues. For nails, spears, shall pierce him through. The cross he bore for me, for you. Mark louds the words of Christ. No one gets the Father but through me. God, through the cross, God made flesh, died. So that we, we who have lived our lives in ignorance of our Creator, we who make our overarching identity other things rather than being His creature, we who daily rebel against his will so that we sinners may have fellowship with him and find everlasting life and joy in knowing that our primary, ultimate, overarching identity as creature to this creator has been fulfilled. We have, we have solidified fellowship with him because the one who is creation's beginning and the one who is creation's end goal has come to pursue us. God became man and died so that God and man may be reconciled. This is true joy. There is fulfillment as identity as a creature. And now we can live our lives under this banner of this one overarching identity, a child of God, a creature living in this divine dance with him that he has purchased for us for all eternity. Not based on our strength, but based on what this God has done for us. Friends, the Bible was not given by God so that we can learn how to maximize our role as an entrepreneur. It's not. As much as we want to believe it, it's not. It gives you something much better. The Bible offers you a way to have your primary identity as this creature grounded in whatever season your business is in. The Bible was not given by God to tell us how to pray so that we can get to marry that dream guy or dream girl, although I hope that happens for you. It gives us something much better. The Bible offers you a way to have your primary identity, your role as his creature, grounded amidst the ups and downs of your romantic life. The Bible is not a checklist of how to live life in such a way that will guarantee us earthly comforts. It's not. It's a revelation of a source of joy and peace and life in the fullest because our main identity as creatures has been fulfilled in Christ and have everlasting fellowship with him, even amidst the discomforts and anxieties of life. This is Christian joy. This is Christmas. Live now. The rest of your week, the rest of your life. Live the numerous roles that you may have in life. Be the best father, mother, spouse, entrepreneur, child, teacher, student, stamp collector. Be the best of those things, but yet know and rest that if you have received Christ, Know that no matter the ups and downs of all these other roles, 
in the grand narrative of things, in the culmination of the grand purpose of this redemptive history of all of life, you are victorious. Rest in that. Feel the ups and downs of these things, but at the same time, also rest. Have joy. Because through your creator's blood, you have been redeemed. And creatures redeemed you are. He has initiated and sealed an eternal fellowship with you till he comes again forevermore. I pray we remember and we cherish and live out this Christmas story, not only today, but the rest of our lives as creatures in worship and in joyful communion, in joyful fellowship with our creator because he has pursued us even unto a cross. He is Emmanuel, God with us. Let's pray. Father, words can describe the joy and the magnitude of the gift that you have given us when you were born as a weak baby in a place unfit for God of the universe. And you walked your life and you lived a life that we should have lived, but then died the, die that, died the death that we deserved because we are sinners and we have failed as creatures. We have made other things priority and forgotten the divine dance we were meant to pursue. And Lord, because of that, you came for us and you pursued us and you died on the cross. And this is a plan you've made all along. This wasn't plan B. This is written from Genesis when we first sinned. This was predicted again all throughout the Old Testament as we read in our call to worship in Isaiah, that you will come, that you will pursue us, those who would trust in you. Thank you for this mercy, and now let us live our lives in complete abandonment and all our other roles lived as redeemed creatures, as children of God, worshiping, glorifying you above all else. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.